Welcome to It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elving. And sitting in for Ken Rudin, I'm Mara Lyason. And welcome, Mara. Pleasure to have you with us. Uh, This is a week in which your experience at covering the White House in good times and bad is going to serve us in good stead. Uh, You remember many of the, shall we say, darkest days of the Clinton White House in the 1990s when not too long into his second term, he seemed to become entirely mired in House investigations by hostile Republicans and by just what seemed to be an endless series of stories about things going awry in his administration. Well, this does seem to be a kind of second-term curse. You could look at other presidents' second terms, Eisenhower, George W. Bush, certainly the Clinton scandals. President Obama has a full plate right now of controversies. It's unclear which one of them are going to produce the biggest political peril for him. The difference between him and Clinton, of course, is so far they haven't reached inside the White House. Now, he's responsible for every one of them. But there hasn't been a direct White House connection to him or any top-level staffers. Um, He did move very forcefully this week to show that he was in control, that he was fixing the problems. He fired the acting commissioner of the IRS. He is promising to look into every one of these scandals and see how the administration can do better. He's been walking a fine line between sending the message, I didn't know about these, it wasn't me, but also I am in charge and I'm going to take care of them. That's right, and that's exactly the kind of fine line he tried to walk in his joint appearance with the Turkish prime minister on Thursday in the Rose Garden. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. My concern is making sure that if there's a problem in the government, that we fix it. That's my responsibility, uh, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, That's true with respect to the IRS and making sure that uh, they apply the laws uh, the way they were intended. That's true with respect to the security of our diplomats, uh, which is why we're going to need to work with Congress uh, to make sure that there's adequate funding for uh, what's necessary out there. I think that the president wants to convince the public that he shares their anger about the IRS, that he's going to do everything to get to the bottom of this, not just firing the acting commissioner, but also looking to see if any other laws were broken. As far as the Benghazi incident is concerned, the president has tried to focus attention on what he thinks is the real problem there. And it's not the controversy over the talking points. It's how we keep American diplomats safe overseas. The whole issue of this of, of talking points, frankly, throughout this process has been a sideshow. What we have been very clear about throughout was that immediately after this event happened, we were not clear who exactly had carried it out, how it had been, uh, how it had occurred, what the motivations were. It happened at the same time as we had seen uh, attacks on U.S. embassies in Cairo as a consequence of this film, and nobody understood exactly what was taking place during the course of those first few days. While the talking points are important to the average American, they want to know whether or not the White House, the State Department, the CIA were being forthcoming to any degree. Also, there is the attitude of political activists, conservatives, members of the House of Representatives, the Republican Party, who feel that the full weight of that disaster, that tragedy back on September 11th, 2012, was not brought to bear in the presidential campaign. That's right. What we know from public polling is that the public has not been paying too much attention to Benghazi. They're not that concerned about it. They are, however, very concerned about the IRS. And it's interesting to see the president trying to kind of tease out each of these individual scandals and 
have the appropriate response to each one. On the IRS, he's angry. He says, I know you're angry. I am too. I've reviewed the Treasury Department watchdog's report, and the misconduct that it uncovered is inexcusable. It's inexcusable, and Americans are right to be angry about it, and I am angry about it. I will not tolerate this kind of behavior in any agency, but especially in the IRS. The IRS is an incendiary issue. The IRS has tremendous power. It reaches into the private lives of every single taxpayer. And it's also one of the biggest hot buttons for the Republican conservative base. And Republicans this week have been happy and thrilled even because they have something that can motivate their base to come out in the midterms. There's nothing like the IRS, short of the ATF, that can get Republican conservatives riled up. And um, that's why the president wants to make sure that he's on the right side of that, too. That's correct. And also, you know, here again, this harks back to something that is deep in the mentality, deep in the belief system of people who have been the president's biggest critics. It could not be more pointed that some of the groups that were having this extra scrutiny from the IRS for their applications for tax exemption were literally Tea Party groups and being singled out because they were calling themselves Tea Party groups. Now, in fairness to the IRS people, they found themselves with a mountain of new applications for this status after the Citizens United decision, and they felt that they had to have some way of narrowing this to a manageable number. They chose the worst possible way they could have done it, not only from an optical standpoint, but from any point of fairness, from any standpoint of political intelligence. So that's what they have to deal with now. And, you know, Newt Gingrich, who has been on both sides of scandal and understands how to operate in the culture of scandal, said to me this week that you can't make these narratives up. This is beyond the wildest dreams of conservatives. And for a midterm election that's going to be fought around many issues, but including Obamacare, just as the last midterm election was, the connection between the IRS and the health care law is closely linked for conservatives because they're going to make the argument, uh, if the IRS can't even handle tax-exempt status for nonprofit groups, how are they going to administer Obamacare? Now, Newt Gingrich would also be the first person to say you can take a narrative like this, you can take an advantage such as this scandal creates, and you can overplay your hand. This is what happened in 1998 when Newt was speaker and when they took the scandals surrounding Bill Clinton all the way to an impeachment process and eventually, in fact, did impeach him in the House. He himself looks back on that now and says... Says, of course, we overreached. And his advice to Republicans in Congress now is to be very relentless but extremely cautious. Be factual, be calm. I don't think that he would like all the talk about impeachment that's already circulating among Republicans on Capitol Hill. He thinks that... Republican committees. And by the way, one third of all the committees in the House of Representatives are currently devoted to investigating the Obama administration. And by the way, I believe that same fraction was investigating the Clinton administration, if not more. And he is recommending that they call every single Tea Party group who applied for tax exempt status and was asked to fill out one extra form and hear their stories over and over and over again. So you build up this incredibly 
deadening record. And one other point I want to make about the White House's effort to get control of this, and they did move with relative alacrity this week. They waited for the IG's report to come out. They had to, and he immediately fired someone. As far as Benghazi, they've been a little slower off the mark. But this week, they did do something that was significant, which is they released what they say are the complete totality of the emails that Republicans in Congress have been demanding. Having to do with the talking points. Having to do with the talking points. So 100 pages of emails. And those emails don't show any evidence that the White House was in there trying to rewrite the talking points for political gain. And that's something that many veterans of scandal think the White House should have done a long time ago. That's right. But they thought that they could tough it out because it was working okay for them back last fall. And then, of course, after the election was over, they thought that they were out of the woods. And to some degree, the evidence is they were out of the woods until the emergence of one, you know, so-called whistleblower from the State Department's mission in Libya uh, did emerge and did become the star of a hearing back a couple of weeks ago, all of which seems a little bit far in the past right now because we've had the emergence of all these other scandals. In fact, even as we're sitting down to do this podcast on Thursday, again, we are emphasizing the inspector general's report from the Justice Department has brought yet another snafu to light, this one having to do with the witness protection program that's run by the Justice Department, dates back 40 years they've been running this thing. There have been 8,000 people in it over the years, and a couple of guys who were in the witness protection program because they were either formerly suspected or suspected terrorists went missing last year and apparently were able to get on airplanes despite previously being on the no-fly list because they had given them new names in the witness protection program and they were able to slip through the detection system and get on planes and at least one of them is now residing outside the United States. And apparently the agencies of the government who administer the no-fly lists were not told that these people had new names, but really they were people who were on the no-fly list. Um, Look, the federal government is a vast complex bureaucracy with lots of moving parts. And it's only a matter of time, kind of like monkeys at a typewriter before one of them writes Shakespeare, or a scandal happens. I mean, it's just almost a mathematical certainty. The scandal usually precedes the Shakespeare. Yes, usually precedes the Shakespeare. But what's interesting is, first of all, a president is going to be judged, obviously, on how he handles this. And if he truly can compartmentalize it, President Clinton you know, created a scandal office to handle all of the the questions about that so he could concentrate on other things. But the other thing to watch is, you mentioned this, is if Republicans overreach. And one of the veterans of the Clinton scandal said to me this week that Republicans' DNA is primed to overuse power and Democrats' DNA is primed to underuse power. Now, isn't that a bit contradictory to, to most people's image of the parties, though, that Democrats are the party of government? They love to exercise governmental power. Being the party of big government maybe isn't the same as being the party of of, of executive authority and power. (laughs) Because the narrative that the Republicans want to push right now is here is a president who is detached. He doesn't know what's happening in his own government. He's too political. He also loves big government, and he likes intrusive government, and he also has a partisan animus against the grassroots right. They have to be incredibly bitter that none of this, almost all of which predate the election, some by years, 
a little bit like, and you know, you were talking about the curse of second terms. Let's go back to the biggest one of them all, Richard Nixon's, where he wins a 49-state landslide in 1972. And then, of course, within six months, his administration is in tatters because of the Watergate scandal, which was largely ignored during the election year. Well, Monica Lewinsky started before President Clinton's reelection, but didn't come to light till afterwards. That's, That's right. the way but these things happen. Whitewater was already in the lexicon in the first Clinton term, but it didn't get traction until it became a sex scandal. Right. But midterm elections are different than general elections, and these scandals are almost tailor-made for a midterm election to help the Republicans because there's a lower turnout. The kind of people who generally turn out are more Republican. And if you're talking about each party's respective bases, these scandals are designed to appeal to the anger and really resentment and bitterness of the Republican Party base who feels that the government has victimized them. Obamacare is an intrusion. The IRS is an overweening bureaucracy. That all seems tailor-made, as you say. Now, in these past scandals we talked about, go back to Eisenhower and Nixon, certainly in the Clinton years, a key figure for all of these, and, and you could throw in the Bush years as well, even Ronald Reagan's problems in his second term, a key figure in all those cases was the attorney general at that time. Different roles played by each of those attorney generals, sometimes making things better, sometimes making things worse, sometimes actually becoming part of the prosecution, if you will, by appointing a special counsel in the Clinton case. So in this instance, a lot of attention right at the vortex of all of these or almost all of these different scandals, if you will, or controversies at the very least, is Eric Holder the president's attorney general, and he was asked at that joint appearance with the Turkish prime minister whether or not he still had confidence, full confidence, in Eric Holder. I have complete confidence in Eric Holder as attorney general. He's an outstanding attorney general, and he uh, does his job with integrity, and, and uh, I expect he will continue to do so. Eric Holder is one of the administration officials that is very close to President Obama, he has notoriously bad relations with Republicans on Capitol Hill. It's ironic that the one scandal that's most closely tied to him, which is the issuing of a subpoena for uh, the Associated Press's phone records and phone logs, that is the one scandal that Eric Holder can't talk about because it, he's directly involved in it. The irony of this is that it was Republicans who demanded that the Justice Department look into these national security leaks because they thought the Obama administration was purposely leaking national security secrets to make them look better as fighters against it terrorism. Was a it was a chest-thumping exercise. Yes, a chest-thumping exercise. Thought. That's what they thought. And now Eric Holder has looked into these leaks, and now the Republicans are saying... Oh, you're violating the civil liberties of the press. We don't like this. Well, and, and of course, in this instance, violating or certainly stressing the First Amendment rights of perhaps as many as 100 journalists. This is one estimate based on the number of phone lines they got telephone logs for, all within the Associated Press. By doing that, of course, you can say they were compromising the First Amendment rights of all Americans to get information about their government. So it's, again, tailor-made for exactly the kind of attack you were describing. But I do think that in and of itself, the AP scandal makes the press mad. I don't know if ordinary Americans care much about whether the press's phone records are being 
subpoenaed. But we do have the spectacle, as you alluded to before, of this awful relationship between House Republicans, especially some of the ones running these hearings, and the Attorney General, which predates any of this, goes back to when they found him in contempt during the first term about a whole other set of controversies, and that bubbled up to the surface again when he came before the House Judiciary Committee this past week. Here he is in an exchange with committee member Daryl Issa. I'm sure there must have been a good reason why only the to and from parts were provided. Yes, you didn't want us to see the details. Mr. Attorney General, no, in no, knowing no, the to and from, do. knowing no, the to I'm and I'm not going to stop talking now. Uh, you know, yeah, you Mr. characterize something as something that uh, goes to Mr. The Chairman, of would you inform the, the witness as to the rules of this committee? appropriate and is too consistent with the way in which you conduct yourself as a member of Congress. It's unacceptable and it's shameful. The uh, gentleman uh, has the time, and the gentleman may ask the questions uh, that uh, he deems appropriate. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's Chairman Bob Goodlot from Virginia interrupting there to try to separate the two as a referee. Uh, Daryl Issa is the chairman of his own committee, the House Government Oversight Committee, that is going to be coming after Eric Holder and a lot of other people uh, as a result of all these things we've been talking about. So this was just a foretaste of what we're going to see. And, of course, it's also a memory of what we saw in the first term. You know, one of the questions that I've been puzzling over this week is to what extent will all of these scandals derail or distract the president's legislative agenda? On the one hand, it certainly is a distraction because that's what we're talking about now instead of jobs and his proposal to increase the minimum wage. The president, though, does not have a whole lot of legislative items pending on Capitol Hill. He's got immigration. He's got immigration, which has a momentum of its own, and it's almost a one-off. It's completely separate from all of this other scandal controversy because it's in the Republicans' political interest to pass it. It appears that in the Senate, with the group of eight, which seems to be holding through three sessions of the Senate Judiciary Committee's markup of this particular legislation, that group holding together suggests no filibuster will prevail against this particular legislation, and something like their original legislation with amendments will get through the Senate. But I think the dynamic that proponents of immigration reform have seen all along is that the Senate has to go first, and it has to pass something with a huge majority, 70 70 votes. That sets up a dynamic where John Boehner can get some cover to either push immigration reform through with a majority of Democratic vote and a minority of his own majority. A back pocket option. He's yes, used he's a few done it times before. Already. He's done it before. Mm-hmm. Or just that the 70 votes send a, sends a signal to Republicans in the House that this is it. This is the train that's leaving the station and you got to get on board. But something interesting happened this week, which was on Wednesday, in the midst of all of the scandal breaking left and right, John McCain went to the White House. Yes, to talk to, to the talk president. To talk to the president. And John McCain and Lindsey Graham have been among the harshest critics of President Obama on Benghazi and other scandals. But on immigration, they have stayed absolutely firm. They've separated that out. They have not rolled it into one big indictment of distaste for President Obama, and they are determined to pass this. I completely agree. I think the Senate will pass it with 70-some votes, and then we will get into the tougher part of this entire negotiation, and it will entirely depend on the disposition of some of the tougher elements in the House, whether or not we get a bill that can get all the way to the president's desk. This is a body where it is so necessary to show their loyalty to an element of their base that, for example, this week, in the midst of everything else that was going on, they held yet another vote 
to repeal Obamacare, knowing, of course, the Senate is never going to take this up, knowing that, of course, the president would veto it. And it is the third time they've done it for the whole Obamacare and the 37th time they've made some attempt to curtail it through a complete kamikaze kind of mission like this. So the House is not necessarily subject to the usual political gravity. No, and most Republicans in the House of Representatives don't have to worry about a general election challenge. They only have to worry about a primary. But it's also true that the implementation of Obamacare is one of President Obama's most important second-term uh, imperatives. Now, it doesn't need congressional action. He, it's going to go forward. But that's where he has to operate the levers of government in a competent way. As a matter of fact, you could say that everything that's happened this week should make Democrats more worried about the implementation of, of Obamacare because that is a huge, complex enterprise. They got to get the exchanges up and running. They got to sign people up. They got to inform people about whether or not they're eligible for a subsidy. And that's a big undertaking. And he has to do that correctly because if there is a backlash against the actual Obamacare as opposed to the theoretical Obamacare, which is the environment we've been in for the last couple of years, it will be very bad for him. Yes. And there's a reason that that worry at this point matters to the Democrats down the road because this is the moment when a lot of people are deciding whether or not to run for office in 2014. So this past week, for example, we saw Stephanie Herseth Sandlin in uh, South Dakota, who might very well have been their strongest candidate and who has been a statewide office holder in that state decide, mm, well, maybe running for Tim Johnson's vacancy seat in uh, 2014. Maybe that's not my best chance to get back to Washington. Yes. And although I don't know if the implementation of Obamacare was a specific reason she decided. I mean, South Dakota is a very red state. And so and is Georgia, which is another place where they're looking yes, for a candidate yes, they're looking for, for a vacancy that, that could be an open seat. Yes. And Georgia is one of those states like Texas that down the road, Democrats have a lot of hope uh, to turn blue, but certainly not for this cycle or the next cycle. And one further thing that we really have to mention, uh, in fairness, Ken Rudin, of course, would never forgive us if we didn't. Uh, this week, Mark Sanford of South Carolina uh, got the final last laugh on all the people who have been laughing at him for the last several years as he took the oath to rejoin the House of Representatives. It now appears that he is unlikely to have an intra-party challenger in 2014, and he has already proven just how tough it is for a Democrat to win in that district. It was an almost 60 percent Mitt Romney district in 2012. And a district that he represented for three terms, so he was well, well known, and he is a gifted retail politician. And his opponent, Elizabeth Colbert Bush, was a neophyte and not a great performer. Whatever the reasons, he is back in the House. And while that's not the governorship and while it doesn't put him back on anybody's uh, short list of people who might be on the national ticket in the future, he has made it all the way back into the national political conversation. And he uh, gets his last laugh on all those of us who have had a few laughs at his expense in the last few years. Yes, and another example of how... Republicans like to worship at the Church of the Second Chance. And that's it for this week's political podcast. You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics. I'm Ron Elvey. And I'm Mara Liason. Ken Rudin is back next week. The podcast is produced by Bracton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw. Join us again next week for It's All Politics from NPR. That's how people are. They laughed at me wanting you. Said it would be hello, goodbye But oh, you came through Now they're eating humble pie They all said we'd never get together 
Darling, let's take a bow. Who's got the last laugh? He, he, he. Let's have the fast laugh. Ha, ha, ha. 